Good morning and good afternoon, everyone. This good evening over here. Good evening for, for those who are joining us from Europe. This is the Ontolog Invited Speaker Presentation, Thursday, October 13th, year 2005. Today we have the opportunity to, in, uh, to invite Professor Barry Smith from the University at Buffalo to present to this community his talk entitled, How to Do Things with Paper, The Ontology of Documents and the Technologies of Identification. But before we uh, move to uh, Professor Smith's presentation, maybe let's go around and uh, take a, uh, the chance to have everyone introduce themselves. Uh, all right, let's go down the list of people who are uh, on the wiki page and uh, start from there. I hope everyone has the wiki page in front of them. Uh, so I'll hold off on Professor Smith because uh, Professor McCarthy will introduce him. So uh, I'll go down the list. I mean, I'm next on the list. Uh, this is Peter Yim. Uh, I'm one of the co-conveners of the Ontolog Forum along with uh, Kurt Conrad and Leo Oberst. Uh, okay. uh, Paul? This is Paul Cook with Cabaret Company in Silver Spring, Maryland. We develop uh, controlled vocabularies in the health sciences. Thanks, Paul. Doug? Oh, this is Doug Inkelbard. I'm sitting out here in California. <laughs> Welcome, Doug. Bill? Uh, hi, I'm Bill Anderson from Ontology Works. Um, I heard Adam Pease there. Hi, Adam. Hi. Long time to hear. Kurt? Kurt. Uh, Kurt Conrad, independent consultant in the Bay Area. Bill? Uh, Bill McCarthy. I'm a professor of accounting and information systems at Michigan State University in East Lansing, Michigan. Yeah, Peter Brown. I'm employed by the European Parliament, but I'm currently on loan, on secondment, as we call it here, to the Austrian government working on pan-European e-government policy. Great. Thanks for calling in all the way from Austria. Uh, yeah, it's a long way. <laughs> Bob? I'm Bob Smith, uh, Tall Tree Labs, interested in healthcare uh, technology changes and the roles that ontology can play in shaping policy decisions. Thanks, Bob. Susan? Yes, I'm Susan Golden with Nirvana, Inc., a semantic search technology company here in the Puget Sound in Washington State, and we're working closely with the FMA. Great. Uh, Nanette? Yes, Nanette uh, working here at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Dwayne? Dwayne, uh, Dwayne Nicole, Teller, Jokes, and Senior Standards Strategist at <laughs> Adobe Systems. <laughs> You get paid for the first one. Okay. James, from Boeing. My name is James Warner. I work for the Boeing Company. We make large, complex flying things. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, Brand. Uh, Brand Neiman, the Environmental Protection Agency and Chair of the Semantic Interoperability Committee of Practice. Adam Pease at Articulate Software, uh, developer of the suggested upper ontology. Okay. 
Monica Martin Sun Microsystems uh, uh, awed by the level of intelligence in the room. Hey, who, who else uh, did we miss? Uh, this is Rex. I'm here. Okay. Uh, let, 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 me, let me go around and see who else uh, we're missing. Uh, Rex Brooks, I've got one. Who, uh, anybody else? Nicholas Roquette. Okay, Nicholas. Uh, anyone else? All right. So, Rex, your turn. Uh, I'm Rex Brooks uh, with Starborn Communications Design. I'm also chair of the Human Markup Technical Committee in Oasis, and I serve on a couple of other technical committees, including the uh, Emergency Management Technical Committee and the uh, one that I share in with uh, Dwayne, the uh, Service-Oriented Architecture Reference Model, TC. Okay. Uh, someone else just joined. Who, uh, who has announced himself? Hello? So, I assume we've got everyone. So uh, now may I uh, invite uh, Professor William McCarthy to introduce our speaker. Okay, well, I was the person that um, suggested to the forum that we contact Professor Smith. Um, uh, and he's got a very distinguished biography, which you can actually read on the, the wiki page here. Um, he is a distinguished professor at SUNY Buffalo and also at a uh, well-known university in Germany. He's an award winner of the Wolfgang Paul Award. Um, but I think the thing that most impressed me and the reason I wanted to have him on the forum is um, not, the, not his accomplishments, but his work, his actual reading. Um, I've been in ontology for a number of years, and I cannot say there's any other author whose work I consistently run across and I have to reference and go back and forth. Um, a very prolific author, a wonderful philosopher and computer scientist. So um, I'm looking forward to a great presentation today. Professor Smith, you're on. Good. Um, so let me uh, introduce myself a little bit uh, as regards what's been happening in recent days. Um, we have just been... Um, informed by the NIH that we are allowed to establish uh, something called the National Center for Biomedical Ontology, which is based in Stanford University and which has various biomedical components at the Mayo Clinic in Berkeley and San Francisco. And then it has the Department of Philosophy in Buffalo, which is um, uh, responsible for what we call ontology dissemination or ontology good practices dissemination. And um, one of the ontology good practices which I would like to disseminate is that people get clear about documents. And so this is a, um, a presentation of some foundational ideas for what I hope will be uh, an ontology of documents which can do justice not just to paper documents, which is what I'm going to be talking about primarily today, but to documents in general. And... Um, the, the presentation is divided into four parts. We may not get through all of it. Um, my idea is that at the end of each part, you, you should interrupt me in any way that you like for purposes of clarification or objection, or if you have good jokes to tell, then we can do that too. And um, I would like to get through the first three parts, and then if we have time, we'll do the standardized documents at the end. So... There is, 
as you all well know, a lot of valuable work on documents within the information science, computer science world, uh, particularly within endeavors like the semantic web and XML developments and the like. And within this world, documents are conceived as information objects. So Bob Glushko defines a document as a purposeful and self-contained collection of information. Uh, now, I think that there is an important element of truth in this definition in the sense that it makes us realize that what's important in a document is not the, um, the physical container necessarily, but also the information content. I think the physical container, however, should not be forgotten for reasons which will become clear shortly. Um, and sometimes I like to think of documents of the sort which one finds, for instance, in the world of um, um, real estate registration, title deeds and the like, as thick paper. That is to say, this is paper which has information content permeating it in such a way that it's the informational features of the object in question which are important rather than the physical features. Now, um, another aspect of the uh, contemporary information systems work on documents is that um, business collaborations and legal exchanges and all of the other things which are mediated by documents are seen primarily as information exchanges. So we, when we have an online purchase, then one conceives this online purchase as moving of information in different directions. And if you want to um, summarize everything I'm going to say in the next uh, hour or so, then it will be the thesis that we're not dealing with information exchanges here. There are certainly information exchanges going on, but information exchange exchanges do not make for, for instance, credit card transactions. So, there is good stuff, but there is also a lot of bad stuff, and um, too much of my life is devoted to exposing what I think are unfortunate decisions in the ontology community. And my current bugbear is the HL7 effort. And HL7 has something called the, the HL7 clinical document architecture, which is not bad, actually. It's a, 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 a document markup standard for clinical care. The problem with this CDA is that it's based on the HL7 RIM. And the HL7 RIM is full of very strange stuff. So the HL7 RIM doesn't really know how to formulate definitions. Uh, it gives its official definition of document as specialization of act to add the characteristics unique to document management services. And what this means is that in order to understand documents, you also have to understand document management services. It also means that you need to know what the word act means. And uh, unfortunately, the, the, the RIM in its official documentation gives at least four different definitions of act at least three of which are logically incompatible with each other. So on the one hand, it defines an act as an action that has happened, can happen, and so on. And the other, on the other hand, it defines an act as a record of an action. Now, if we're interested in the ontology of documents, then 
it's precisely the distinction between an action and the record of an action that we get clear. And the HL7's definitions systematically confuse those two. In fact, it says explicitly that there is no distinction between an activity and its documentation. It also asserts that a document is a special type of structured document. At least I think that's what it says. It, 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 it doesn't really have a, a very clear notion of subtype or subclass, but if I'm understanding the HL7 RIM documentation correctly, then they are making an assertion which is logically of the same form as a number is a special type of prime number. That is not an untypical kind of an assertion within the HL7 RIM. The, the, the summary of all of this is that within the RIM, you, you cannot make distinctions between things like documents which can be stored, paper documents for instance, acts of recording information, acts of ordering or signing documents, information recorded in documents, and so on. It's, um, it's not a very useful starting point for a good document architecture. Now, I'm not interested, at least for today's purposes, in novels or fairy tales or religious tracts. I'm interested in the sorts of time-sensitive documents which are involved when we engage in social transactions of various important sorts. So we, we might call this class of documents tentatively uh, and initially time-sensitive documents. I take it that these documents are very important, and I take it that these documents are not merely collections of information. And now, here are some examples which we would need to think about in order to see which things which, which are currently customarily called documents in fact fall within this central focus of time-sensitive documents. So most maps do not. There are some maps which are parts of treaties, for instance, between governments, and they presumably fall within the focus class. But most maps do not, just as most recipes do not. A credit card receipt does fall within the, um, within the focus class. I'm just not quite clear why that's on the side of not made of paper. But uh, I think what I meant to say there was that a credit card does fall within the focus class, even though it's not made of paper, it's made of plastic. And now, the Oxford English Dictionary gives us a, um, a, a pair of definitions which get quite close to the notion that I want to focus on today. So, a document is that which serves to show or point out or prove something. Now, I do not believe that this is uh, it, by any means sufficient, but it certainly is true of many of the documents that we will be concerned with, that they can be used for purposes of audit trails. That is to say, we can use them to check things, things involving commitments and obligations. The meaning number four given by the OED is something written, inscribed, which furnishes evidence or information. It says here, upon any subject. I think that that's too wide, because that would include things like um, instruction manuals, which are outside the, the uh, focus of time-sensitive documents. But still, the, 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 this is roughly the, the area we're moving in. We're moving in the area of documents which provide, or can provide, 
evidence, documents which have a specific type, which means that they are reliably used to provide evidence. So you could use a novel in a court case if a novel was used as a blunt instrument to kill somebody or something, but that is not what is meant when we say that a document provides evidence in a reliable, typical way. Now, we have the various attempts to produce document ontologies, document architectures, and what is missing, at least in the way of systematic treatment from these, I think, is an account of what philosophers call the deontic features of documents. Deontics has to do with value, claim, obligation, and similar quasi-ethical, quasi-legal notions. Documents can have deontic powers. And this is clear if we're thinking of a title deed or a check or a, um, a receipt or a, a command document in an army. And it's because of these deontic powers that documents can be used then for audit purposes, where we want to check that given obligations were in fact realized in the right way and by the right person. Because of these deontic powers, and because social interactions often involve deontic components, documents can play roles in social interactions. They can bind people together. For instance, in the way in which a marriage document binds together a married couple. What this means is that there are various things that we can do with documents, and so I think a good document ontology has to be also an ontology of document acts. And the, the title which Peter um, has displayed on the wiki, How to Do Things with Paper, is actually derived from a famous uh, book on speech acts called How to Do Things with Words. The ontology of documents, I think, is a, a new chapter alongside the theory of speech acts, which I think is something else which needs to be treated in an ontological way. But we also need to deal with the systems to which documents belong, things like legal systems. And something else which I think is important, and I hope that this will become clear very soon, is that we need to, to examine very carefully the provenance of documents. It's provenance which distinguishes authentic documents from copies and forgeries. And I take it that one of the main challenges for the treatment of digital documents, both theoretically and practically, is the creation of digital counterparts of the kinds of provenance which we have in the world of parchment and paper documents. We also need to distinguish between documents as standalone entities and bundles of documents. If I uh, open a bank account, various documents exchange hands. Some of these documents have copies, and some of these copies get attached to other documents in the bank. And then when I show my identity card to an office of the bank in a remote place, my identity card becomes attached remotely to the documents in the bundle in the office of the bank where I, where I originally opened the account. Now that sort of interconnection or attachment of documents is one of the reasons why documents play all kinds, all kinds of socially connecting roles. Then we have uh, uh, the, the distinction between documents which exist in two forms, namely as templates, standardized forms, 
and it's filled in documents. And then we have the, the distinction we've already d d addressed between the document and the physical carrier. And I hope it's clear that um, all of these things involve features which are in very important in very many kinds of important social interactions, but they're also all of them features which can't be dealt with adequately if we view documents simply as collections of information. Now, in philosophy, there is a, um, a very influential distinction which has been drawn by Nelson Goodman in a classic work on the ontology and um, uh, theory of art, which is the distinction between allographic and autographic entities. And Goodman applied this distinction to works of art, but you can apply it actually to very many kinds of entities. He defines an autographic work of art as a work of art where there is a distinction between an original and a copy. So paintings are autographic. You, you do not want to buy a copy of a Rembrandt painting and pay the same price that you would pay if it was an original. Even if it's, it, if it's indistinguishable from the original by any living expert, you still would not want to pay the same price. Music, on the other hand, is such that there is no purchase for the distinction between original and copy. And from this it follows that you can't have a musical forgery. You can't forge a poem. Because music and poetry are both notational. Now, another way of putting our earlier question about provenance is, is with the question, how can we simulate the feature of being autographic in a digital medium? where it seems that everything can just be copied and that the copy is, in every respect, a perfect copy of the original. The only way we can do this, I think, and this is one of the uh, questions that I'm hoping people can help me with, is to simulate the feature of provenance. And some of this is, of course, happening where people are using MAC addresses and other features in order to, to define information trails which lead back to non-informational entities like pieces of hardware. So, for allographic objects, identity is notional. All digital objects are allographic. All pure digital objects. Autographic objects are such that their identity is historical. So, a signature is autographic. Now, there are counterintuitive features of this distinction. One counterintuitive feature is that there are two kinds of fingerprints, which are chemically, physically, in all other natural, scientifically accessible ways, indistinguishable. If I leave a fingerprint at the scene of the crime, then that fingerprint is autographic. It's important that it is the original fingerprint. A copy would not do. If, however, I give my fingerprint to a, a police agent for some purpose, then that fingerprint is allographic. A copy of that fingerprint is perfectly good. Maybe even a digital copy would be perfectly good for all the purposes which it's intended to serve. So that's the end of part one. And um, I invite... Oh, I just clicked the wrong button. I invite questions. If people... Could I make one question, please? 
On, when you mentioned about the distinction on the fingerprint at the scene of the crime versus for identification purposes, you said that um, a document as a um, um, can play different roles and um, and whatnot. Couldn't we say the same thing of in the end um, the physical manifestation of the fingerprint in both cases, which is on you know some, maybe on a cup or on a piece of paper, but that the role with which we use that then determines whether it's uh, uh, in, as an information value, uh, which in case it might be holographic, or whether it has a, uh, a tangible value, in which case it might be autographic. So the, uh, the, 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 the agent, the, the, the police person or whoever is investigating the scene of the crime is not interested in the fingerprint as a pure information object. The, the fingerprint has to be a fingerprint which was left at a certain time by a certain person in a certain way. So if, if somebody who is trying to frame you leaves a copy, a physically identical copy of your fingerprint at the scene of the crime, it's not... That, even though it is your fingerprint which is carried on some special fingerprint sensitive paper and left there in such a way that it appears that it was left there at, at the, the crime scene at the right time, it, it, it would not be the kind of object which would be um, what he thinks it is. He's making a mistake. Just as you're making a mistake if you think that the signature, which is a forged signature, is in fact the signature of the person you think it's a signature of, because you don't know that it's a forgery. Right, because in fact there is provenance as well in the physical world, just like in the information that you need to trace to the physical entity, which must have valid provenance. Okay, I suppose one could summarize what I'm trying to say here in the thesis that there is also fake provenance. You can fake the provenance of a signature, you can fake the provenance of a fingerprint. And the, the, when, you, when we're investigating a crime, we want to be sure that we're dealing with a signature which has authentic provenance. This is Dwayne. One of the things that I think is important to note, too, is that when things like fingerprints are serialized for transport in the electronic world, they don't actually serialize them. They use an algorithm to make a hash of it and then compare it to to a hash made using the same algorithm with the gold copy of it. Right. I think that the ontology of fingerprints, which I will come back to later on, is actually a much richer hunting ground for distinctions than, than we might initially suppose. So there are digitalized versions of fingerprints of the sort that you just described which play important identificatory roles and which might even be called fingerprints. These are different from just poor copies of fingerprints. A poor copy of a fingerprint still has the correct provenance. It's not a fake. There are, there are corrupted, digitalized versions of fingerprints which have become corrupted for reasons which have nothing to do with fakery or bad provenance. All of these distinctions might be very important when we're trying to keep track of people's identity using fingerprints. Okay, I, I'll, I'll first, uh, the, the person who asked the question was Nicholas Ruquette, right? Uh, yes. May I also request that people uh, uh, identify themselves uh, before they ask a question? That will help. Uh, okay. Okay. Uh, 
maybe excuse me, Chris, let me try a, a different tack on, on the problem. You said, you know, there's a rich ontology of fingerprints and there's all kinds of ways in which it could be faked or, or, or real and whatnot. I, isn't this then, or could we look at this as an issue of uh, perhaps measurement criteria or or feature or, or, or features that that we use to to say these are the the properties by which we educate on um, what's a illegitimate um, um, authentic uh, essentially provenance um, uh, proof such that we can say so that we can then determine when something is um, as, as pure information because perhaps there's no uh, provenance criteria defined for it that we trace it to a physical uh, property versus something that is um, autographic because there is an explicitly defined provenance criteria defined in terms of, of, of a set of features that we know how to measure and, and, and test and evaluate. Good. I'm more pessimistic than that, but I, I, I can summarize our area of agreement as follows. For pure digital objects, pure allographic objects, the issue of provenance doesn't arise. We don't care. We, we can see the digital object. We can, we can establish without any doubt at all that one digital object is a perfect copy of another digital object. That's, what, that's virtually the definition of what it is to be a digital object. For, for autographic objects, including uh, the people, for instance, uh, you, you are an allographic object. You, you, you would not like a copy of you, even if it was a perfect copy, to be signing checks in, on your behalf. We, where, where it comes to allographic objects, sorry, where it comes to autographic objects like people, fingerprints, signatures, and so on, there is the problem of establishing identity which normally involves historical issues, issues of provenance. The problem with history is that we don't have any foolproof criteria for working out whether a given historical claim is true. And what that means is that we can always be mistaken about the, um, uh, the authenticity of autographic objects. We don't have any foolproof criterion in the way that we do have a foolproof criterion of identity for digital objects. Um, this is Bill. Can I interject a question? Yep. Um, hopefully there's not an echo. I'm using this voice over IT thing. Anyway, um, I, I, I would take a, a slight ex exception to what Barry said about so-called allographic objects or digital objects being allographic. Um, in the work we've been doing with the government on database security, it seems to be the presence of individual sentence tokens encoded as, in, as, as digital information on a disk, for example, um, that needs to be tracked uh, with provenance, in, including if any, uh, for example, any copy operations are applied to those objects and they're, they're brought into another location on the disk. Think now of the digital encoding of these sentences. Um, for security reasons, they need to keep track of those things. Okay, if so you had, there's an example of digital had, information subject to problems. If you had a database on a computer at, at one place and then another database on a computer at another place, 
even if those two databases have a completely different provenance, if they are byte for byte identical, then any distinctions in provenance must be irrelevant. Well, that's actually unclear because um, it, it's possible that, for example, that Barry is located in Buffalo is encoded in a sentence in a database and that that was obtained by a spy satellite. So the presence of that information on the disk uh, in terms of where it came from is very important uh, to these people. Whereas, let's say, if a psychic independently determines this and stores it in a database in exactly the same digital format, um, that, that is a crucial distinction for these people. Okay, I, I think I'm convinced. That, at the type level, I agree with you. In terms of sentence type, they're identical. Uh, but the tokens certainly not are not identical. Uh, uh, this is because I'm not I'm not quite as convinced in that what you just mentioned about the origin of the information itself is where you establish that um, that that provenance and and if you will the trust or or the legitimacy. The information itself, as as Barry pointed out, if it came from two uh, you know byte identical databases, has no intrinsic um, you know. Um, uh, provenance or or, or or legitimacy, it it, it it gains one of those when you also say where did you get that information yeah. from? In which exactly. case it, it has a if in our in autographic uh, meaning. Yes, yeah. so I think that this is actually something that we can all all agree on. The, the the piece of data that Bill is describing might come to him through two avenues. He's a, he's a government agent. He gets two pieces of paper. On one piece of paper, it says, our spy satellite says Barry is in Buffalo. On the other piece of paper, it says, our spy satellite says Barry is in Buffalo. These are digitally identical. But one of them came from the spy satellite office. The other one came from a, um, uh, a, 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 a somebody reading a crystal ball. That means, right. and this is the point I was making at the very beginning, that a document is not an information object. A document is an information object plus various other things. And one of the other things which we need to recognize in many of the cases which are interesting for our purposes when we're doing the ontology of documents is provenance. Many documents are information plus provenance. This I think is Peter I'm Brown. Part two now. Um, uh, is, is there one more urgent question? <laughs> There's a loaded question itself. Very, very briefly, this is Peter. I'm just wondering about the word provenance. I mean, is it is it only provenance, or is it context, or is it um, what in criminal law they would call chain of evidence, unbroken chain of evidence? Because I think it's not just provenance to me seems to imply just the history of the document, yeah. not the where it is now and what it's being used for in the context in which it appears. So one of the things that I have been um, stressing so far is the way in which documents get attached together in bundles. Now, I think probably uh, addressing your remark, I would need to emphasize also the way in which documents get attached to various kinds of contextually important events, people testifying, swearing, witnessing, and I'll be coming mm -hmm. to that okay, uh, fair in, enough. in due course. So I'll move to part two now. Um, the, this is about what documents do, what documents achieve. And um, the, the, I think it's important, not just for the purposes of the, this talk, but quite generally, to distinguish between two types of ontology, which unfortunately 
uh, get confused together. One is the type of ontology which is good when you're doing, for instance, uh, an ontology of proteins. And there you're dealing with entities and with types of entities which exist independently of any decisions made by human beings. <coughs> but very often when we're do building ontologies in government or in e-commerce or in similar fields, we're dealing with administrative domains where the entities that we are interested in are, are such that we created them. And the ontology of such administrative entities, it looks quite different from the ontology of, um, of proteins or um, gene products. Mm -hmm. We, 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 we make the same distinction, but we just call them prescriptive and descriptive ontologies. And um, I, there can be a descriptive ontology of a prescriptive domain. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure there can be a prescriptive ontology of a descriptive domain, but certainly there can be. That, that your distinction is, is a valid and important one, but it's not quite the same as the distinction I have in mind. Okay. So, the kinds of entities that we can create are organizations themselves, um, rules, debts, and so on. Um, it's that kind of abstract entity that I'm interested in. I'm not interested in creating a building or a painting, but rather I'm interested in creating something like a price or a debt or a, a stock option. And then the question, the, the ontological question is, what does create mean in this context? Now, I talked already about speech act theory. Document act theory, I think, is a, a necessary sister discipline to speech act theory. And speech act theory distinguishes between different kinds of things that you can do with words. Most importantly, you can issue commands, you can make promises, you can express yourself, but then you can bring about changes in the world just by speaking, as, for instance, when you baptize somebody or something. Mm -hmm. And this, this, the, this catalog of different kinds of speech acts has been pretty well established for some time now. It's not, as far as I know, been applied to documents in anything like the systematic way that, that the, the world of documents would deserve. And now, John Searle could be, uh, who is one of the, uh, the, the Anglo-Saxon founders of speech act theory, could be um, uh, charged with having made the claim or having defended the thesis that it's speech acts which bring administrative objects into existence. So, more precisely using his own terminology, entities like claims, obligations, and other deontic powers are brought into existence by the performance of different kinds of speech acts. So an act of promising brings into being a precisely coordinated claim on the part of the promisee and an obligation on the part of the promiseur. And Searle sees this idea as being the, uh, the starting point for an ontology of social reality in general, including social realities like presidents and religions and the like. Now, I think that um, um, Searle has a very important starting point here. I, I note in passing that um, the HL7 RIM claims to be based on speech act theory. But as far as I can tell, it, it completely misunderstands it, and it ignores what I take it to be the heart of speech act theory as, as propounded by Searle, namely precisely that we can do things with words which have deontic consequences. So we can change the world. 
And we can change the world only if different sorts of background conditions or context conditions are satisfied. So we can make a promise only if the addressee of the promise accepts the claim. We can't make a promise to do something bad to somebody. If we successfully make a promise, then the world changes, and this happens immediately. Something new comes into being. And this new thing can survive for an extended period of time thereafter. And now the big question is, what is the physical basis for this extended existence? The Speech Act idea can help us to understand how a claim or an obligation begins to exist. But what is it which makes it continue to exist? Now, I think that in a small society, and some of these ideas were worked out in relation to the role of documents in, in uh, villages in the third world. In a small society, it's the memories of the people involved which explains the continued existence of these deontic objects. But in large societies, memories clearly cannot suffice. And this is one of the reasons why the, uh, the, the literature on literacy and on the role of print and writing in the establishment of major world civilizations emphasizes so much the thesis that it was the creation of documents which made large societies possible. Large societies can exist only if there are social bonds. Social bonds are deontic objects. Deontic objects need to have some sort of physical basis which would be the counterpart of memories. Memories themselves cannot suffice for, for large societies and therefore documents play a role of making large societies, civilizations possible. They create permanent meaning and permanent deontic powers. Now there are speech acts which create things instantaneously and we then rely on memories to keep those things in existence. And that relying on memories is of course a very unsafe thing to do, even in a small village. But then there are document acts. And document acts perform the same feat, but they do it using different technology. There are various differences between document acts and speech acts because of these technological physical differences. So the first thing is that we can rely on documents to do a lot of the intellectual work of document acts for us. Some of you may know the work of J.J. Gibson on embodied cognition. Documents allow us to be lazy in our intellectual work. We can use documents as crutches. If we trust the source of a document, we likely will not read it, but we likely will sign it nonetheless. Another big difference between document acts and speech acts is that documents have physical bearers which survive, and they can change. They can be filled in, signed, stamped, and so on. This will be very important when we look at the what, what things we can do with documents later. As we've already mentioned, documents create audit trails, and documents can be attached together. And sometimes attaching documents together creates counterpart attachments, bonds on the side of the human beings who are referred to in those documents. For instance, the bond between a debtor and a creditor. Another difference between document acts and speech acts is that speech acts, which are mediated by very simple sentences, simple grammatical forms, 
generally speaking, are clear instances of one or other of the five types I mentioned. Documents, however, and the Associated Document Act can involve several of these different types simultaneously in combination. So a delivery note, for instance, is both the equivalent of a command and also when it gets signed by the, the, the recipient, it's the equivalent of a waiver. You waive your claim to have the object delivered because you have attested to the fact that you've already received it. That one and the same document bears different speech act components. An interesting case is the, um, the, the way in which your signature works in your passport. When you sign your passport, your signature is both autographic and allographic. It's autographic because you're attesting to the truth of a certain assertion, namely that you are it. But it's allographic because it thereafter can serve as a sample for testing whether you are it. Now, speech acts differ from document acts also because speech acts are normally self-validating. There is no room for provenance. A speech act is its own history. The problem with documents is that they enjoy lives independently of their original originating acts. And therefore, we need various kinds of technological devices, which are technological physical counterparts of memory in order to bind document acts to the, sorry, in order to bind documents as they move off to lead lives of their own to the original document acts in virtue of which they exist and have the deontic powers that they have. And we will see some examples of these technological devices very soon. So, in, in, in the seals, for instance, and signatures and stamps there are in, in illustrations of all of these here, and special writing, which only very special kinds of people can, can perform, have been trained to carry out this special writing. And this particular document is a document prepared when very few people could write at all. And here is a slightly more recent document, which illustrates the use of special stamps and special inks and special counter signatures across special stamps and special numbers and special dates, all of which combine to create a sort of encapsulated history within the document itself so that we can reach back to the original individuals who were originally responding for the attestation of the validity of what is documented or responsible for making the obligations that are documented and so forth. And now, just to repeat, Searle's thesis is that deontic powers are brought into existence by the performance of speech acts. I said that many of these ideas arose in studying the, um, the documents you find in small villages in the third world. Um, these ideas were worked out by Hernando de Soto, who published a book called The Mystery of Capital. The, the, you could say that the mystery of capital for, for de Soto is documents. It's documents which make capitalism possible. It's documents which make possible things like pensions and social security. It's documents which make possible the, uh, the creation of expanded markets which enable people in small villages to trade with people in other small villages or in towns and cities. So we could formulate the De Soto thesis 
as the thesis according to which documents and document systems are the mechanisms for creating the institutional orders of modern societies. I do not believe that anybody else apart from De Soto has formulated this thesis in a clear and consistent way. Many people have put forward the thesis that writing and printing were the necessary precursors of large-scale civilization. But to formulate the argument why that is so, I think you need to turn to De Soto. So, the, here are some examples of the sort of thinking which De Soto allows us to engage in when we're thinking about the creative powers of documents. He himself is interested, for instance, in the way in which stock and share certificates create capital, or title deeds create real estate parcels. But we can also think about the ways in which um, marriage licenses create bonds of matrimony, or examination documents create uh, physicians or members of the Mandarin civil service, or insurance certificates create insurance coverage, or patents create certain kinds of rights, or membership cards create other kinds of rights, and so on. In each case, we're dealing with highly special kinds of abstract, historical, deontic objects. Highly special kinds of rights or obligations which are created by highly special kinds of documents. And now, we can substitute my original tentative specification of our focus. Instead of being interested in time-sensitive documents, we're interested in time-sensitive creative documents documents which create things like rights, obligations, and so forth. And now, an interesting case is an identity document. An identity document creates an identity. And this, this is a label for a series of ontological problems. The identity document might be a fake identity document. Somebody might steal your identity. The ontology of identity is, I believe, a, 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 a another area which the ontology of documents is going to um, make possible. In addition to the ontology of identity, we also have the epistemology of identity, which we've sort of addressed earlier um, when we were talking about establishing provenance. We can always be wrong about provenance. We can always be wrong about identity. And therefore, we need all kinds of technological support in order to ensure against the, the most easily preventable ways of being wrong about these things. This is Dwayne Nichol from Adobe. Are you taking questions during I, I am uh, uh, feeling generous, yes. Okay. Um, so, something you just said about the identity, about, uh, you know, identity cards really struck a chord of um, intrigue with me. In general, most people seem to have this perception that an identity card somehow asserts that you are a certain individual. But if you actually study it very pragmatically, all an identity card really asserts is that you have satisfied some process uh, with some agency or other entity who has issued you, after completing that process, a card stating you have the right to use this name because you completed their process. That process in itself probably relied on several other processes. Uh, example, um, I have a driver's license. I got my driver's license by showing my birth certificate and passing a driving test. Um, eventually, the whole thing is really a chain of trust that goes back, and you can probably blame it on your parents. Um, does this, you know, uh, idea or notion of 
what an identity card really is jive with um, the, the kind of theory you're expounding? Okay, I think that you, one might describe your account as the pessimistic ontology of identity. Um, well, I, I prefer to think of it as a as a uh, pragmatic of you, because if I show you my driver's license, you can look at the picture, you can validate that, in fact, that picture, and assuming that the, the card is accepted as untampered, you can assert that, you know, I am the owner or I'm the person in that card. But it's really a matter of looking at what does the issue, what does me having that card really stand for? What what is the true semantics behind that? And the semantics behind it are that I've satisfied an agency's process uh, to their satisfaction, and then they have, at the completion of the process, issued me a card. Good. So I I I think that you are certainly along the right lines, but you are missing important an important other side of this. You can use an identity card in different ways. You can use your identity card to prove your identity. Now, of course, you can't prove it infallibly. You can only prove it to the pragmatically useful degree that you just described. Yeah, but that's I one use. Assert you can never prove your identity to anybody. It's just a, a, a chain of trust. Yeah, so that, that's, that, that is exactly in keeping with what I've been saying, that with regard to historical matters, we can never have infallible evidence. But you can use an identity card also in another way. You can use my identity card in order to establish my identity. Now, that's a quite different kind of use. On the one hand, you are using it to establish your own identity. On the other hand, I'm using it to check what you claim. Now, that's one aspect that we need to, to pay careful attention to. And I, 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 I haven't thought this through, but I have a feeling that the pragmatic approach that you're taking now will look differently according to which of those two aspects we, uh, we take. But there's a much more important problem for your view. One of the, um, um, the, the, the main uh, principles which I've been trying to propound in the ontology world, particularly in biomedical ontologies, but also in other domains, is that an ontology, if it's any good, should not contradict common sense. I, I it, can certainly buy that, but... Let me just fi finish, finish the, the argument. If it does co contradict common sense, it, people will not build it properly, they will, and they will not understand it, and they will likely not use it. So ontology should, should at least be compatible with common sense. And the one big problem with HL7RIM, I promise not to mention HL7RIM more than a dozen times, uh, is that it's completely counter-commonsensical. Now, the problem is that when I get my passport, there is a, a clause in there which I sign. It says, I testify that I am, and then I sign my name, Barry Smith. I am whoever is identified in this document. I'm not lying when I sign that. And the person who sees my passport and reads that testimony should not be required to assume that I'm lying. Why? Because that would be counter-commonsensical. We should yeah. not. It, it would be... Uh, but I've got a way in here with it. I mean, you're, you're judging this, in, I think, in absolutes, whereas it's not really an absolute. All it is is a comfort level of trust. So yeah, if you show me your passport and it's issued from the U.S. government, I'm obviously going to place a lot more weight and credibility on that token than I would from, uh, you know, if you presented me a library card from northern Yemen. 
However, none of these actually mean that you are Barry Smith. In fact, you, the only reason you think you're Barry Smith is that this name has been given to you via these, these processes and from your parents. But that, again, is just a chain of trust. You trust your parents that they wouldn't lie to you about your name. And it's a reasonable assertion. So anyhow, I, I don't want to railroad the track anymore. Let me just, this is precisely the sort of issue which I think is crucial to get right if we're going to get ontology right. We need to take account of both what you're saying and of what I'm saying, you, which you call absolute. I, I think that I take account of what you, you're saying as well as what I'm saying. Let me give you Can I give the, the take on that? This is Peter. I mean, yeah. the, I think the, 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 the essence of what you're saying here, which I do agree with, but is that we've come, there, there is a point at which documents have moved from a domain where they are documenting something that is, in other words, they are descriptive, to become a vehicle in a systemic, in a systemic world of institutionalized passing of uh, proofs of uh, identity of different, different sorts around, that to become a prescriptive uh, object which has value in itself. I mean, for example, I have never had to uh, show any document that I've passed any examination. I know I've passed the examination, I know I got my university degree or whatever, but I've never had to prove it because under English law, um, the document that I get is that it's from the original. I mean, put it another way, the word document, if, if you look at it uh, historically, was actually used as a verb before it was used as a as a noun. Yeah. To document something. So I think what the, the essence of what you're trying to get at, and this is where I agree with Dwayne's point, but where it's we're on this sort of cusp between the backward-looking approach of where the document is purely descriptive to one where uh, it's becoming systemic and where it's having to be prescriptive. Maybe I can just underline my point by saying that there are two different kinds of questions we can, we can ask about identity and identity documents. One is the ontological question. Can this document be attached to the person named inside it in what Duane would call the absolute way? I think common sense would say yes. Can we know in any given case that the document is not a fake or that the person holding it is not lying? That is an epistemological question. And there, Duane is right. Pragmatically speaking, we can never be sure. But the fact that we can never be sure does not mean it's never the case. In fact, it usually is the case. And that's why people don't usually bother to, uh, to examine Peter's uh, examination documents. Because they, yeah. usually people don't lie about examination documents. But now I think I'm going to move on. We've been suspicious of Peter for years, so. I see. <laughs> so, we documents create authorities. That's one of the most important ways in which documents can create new layers in the ontology of institutional uh, reality, in the administrative world. Documents create authorities. Those authorities can then create other documents. And, of course, those other documents then might create other kinds of deontic powers for instance, the power not to turn up for work because you're sick. And sometimes sick notes genuinely are true descriptions of the state of health of the person who bears them. But now there is an interesting distinction, which is actually very important if you want to understand the way the spontaneous kinds of documents created in small villages in Africa work. They're usually created spontaneously without any legal support from any government body but they are respected nonetheless by the people in the surrounding villages. What we have here is a case where a document is 
issued by an authority in the sense of somebody who is respected and recognized by the people in the surrounding area, but not within the framework of a valid legal institution. The U United States Declaration of Independence is an example of such a document, which was, as it happens, given legal authority in the course of time, but when it was first issued, it was an extra-legal document. And of course, there was a time when all documents were extra-legal documents. It took a long time for the document system of legal institutions and government, centralized government institutions to evolve to the degree that we are familiar with in Western societies today. And that, an example of a kind of document which creates a complex kind of institutional order is an organizational chart which creates positional roles and relations of authority, flows of authority between the occupants of positional roles. One interesting feature of the organizational chart is that it transcends time. So the same organizational chart can still be a valid document even though all the occupants of the roles depicted within it are dead. And then the homework for you all is how do we classify these kinds of documents? What kinds of deontic powers do they give rise to? Are they allographic, autographic, and so forth? And um, we can return to our original question to point out that there are some paper, paper entities, they're not documents in the relevant sense, which do not have creative powers of the sort I've been describing. Novels do not have such creative powers. Novels are also allographic entities. Watercolors do not have those creative powers. Watercolors are the, are the products of creativity, but they do not themselves have creative powers in the deontic institutional sense that I've been talking about. Uh, watercolors, of course, are autographic. So we have here instances of both allographic and autographic paper objects, which are not documents in the sense that I'm interested in here. So we can, we, we can have a sort of chart. We have four kinds of entity. We have allographic entities which are not created, like novels. We have autographic entities which are not created, like paintings. And then we have the creative types. Allographic creative entities are things like timetables. The, the railway company issues a timetable in thousands of copies. This, this is an obligation on the part of the railway company to run the trains in accordance with that timetable. But the timetable can exist in many copies. But a birth certificate can exist in only one copy. It's quite complicated to get a copy of a birth certificate, which will have the same deontic powers as the original of a birth certificate. And the reason for that is because a birth certificate plays a role in verifying identity. And we don't want copies to play the same role in verifying identity as is played by originals, because otherwise the issue of provenance becomes much more difficult to check. Are the column headers a deliberate mistake, or is that me being a bit dumb? I probably, it's, uh, let me, I've lost my page. Yeah. So it's, it's the other way around, surely. Um. Here we are. So, um, the, um, I think that's right. I don't see any problem here. So what, what, what makes you think I've made a mistake? Uh, you've got paintings, statues, and buildings as non-creative. Yeah, and that's right. Remember, my definition of creative is give rise to 
deontic powers or abstract institutional entities. Okay, in the prescriptive sense. Sorry. Okay. Don't yeah. say prescriptive all the time because um, yeah. okay. it, not, a bank note, for instance, <laughs> is not giving rise to any prescriptive power. It's giving rise to a, 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 a the opposite of a prescriptive power. It's giving rise to a freedom. Yeah. Sorry, just getting late here. <laughs> yeah, well, well I'm, I must apologize. <laughs> Just a general comment. I, I, I still don't buy uh, entirely this thing about creatives and creative power. I mean, different legal systems in different countries give different weights to um, the power of, for example, um, a driving license, for example. In the United Kingdom, you can drive without carrying a driving license because the license is only considered to be a description of your rights which have been inherited from passing the test. Whereas in Belgium, if you don't carry the piece of paper, you can't drive. That, that so there is, is a, a, a very useful point, and I will return to it okay. later on, because credit cards play the same Exactly, role. similar. So, first of all, let me emphasize that I'm not making any claim that all of these kinds of entities work in just the same way in all jurisdictions. On the contrary, okay. it's part of my um, remit to insist upon the different kinds of ways in which these kinds of entities work according to the legal context, for instance. Uh, this is Nicholas. Yeah. It, it, don't we need to have some kind of um, ontology of commitment or, or, or social commitment in order for this to work? I mean, when you say that, you know, the document has a creative you know, power um, uh, to, to, to say um, uh, I have the authority to do this or I have like, like the physician example earlier who can um, you know issue prescriptions whereas I could not if I didn't have a doctor's yeah. license yeah, you're absolutely right so um, I referred earlier to the Anglo-Saxon originators of speech act theory the, the Anglo-Saxon originators namely Austin and Searle were interested primarily in the philosophy of language Searle himself more, more recently has done a lot of very important work on the ontology of social reality generally, not just language, but language was the focus. There was, in fact, an earlier originator of speech act theory in Germany, a man called Adolf Reinach, who was a, um, a philosopher of law who created precisely the ontology of commitments and obligations and claims that you um, are suggesting that we need. And I, I have... Um, I've done quite a bit of work on Reinach in my time, and I strongly recommend his work to any of you who are interested in these kinds of questions. And much of it is translated into English. So. Mm. All right, I think I'll move to part three now. So what can we do with documents? That's the, um, the question we're going to be addressing here. Well, first of all, we can do things with documents which are as it were, for the sake of the documents themselves, so we can sign them, stamp them, register them, and so on. And uh, therefore, an ontology of documents is going to have to include not just an ontology of document acts, but also an ontology of things like signatures. It, I think it's interesting that signatures do not exist outside the realm of documents. So the, the ontology of signatures is a chapter in the ontology of documents. Fingerprints do exist outside the realm of documents, but if you look at documents produced in Africa today, for instance, you will find that very many of these documents are validated, attested to, not by means of signatures, but by means of fingerprints. 
which in some ways, of course, are better than fingerprints when it comes to uh, solving the problem of provenance. Something else that we need to deal with is the fact that the different document systems in which different types of documents are involved will involve different types of addressees. There will be different constellations of creators of documents, of guardians of documents, of fillers in of documents, of recipients and storers and registers of documents, and then, of course, the people who benefit from documents in various ways. And there are, I'm sure, more categories of, doc of, of persons, types of persons involved in the history of any given type of document. Some of these types of persons are going to need digitalized counterparts when it comes to um, examining the ways in which digitalized counterparts of documents work in, for instance, internet transactions. So registration is another important chapter. There is no registration without documents. The, the, you can look in the, the early history of registration, just you can look at the early history of notarization to see how, with the growth of paper, came the growth of institutions to store and look after that paper in ways which make it accessible to the people who need to check it, changeable when some of the things which the documents record themselves change, combinable in order to create the kinds of social relations I've been referring to, for instance, in the case of collateral for a debt, and then also more easily authenticated so that you can check whether a particular piece of property has uh, been used as collateral by its owner, in which case you wouldn't probably want to buy it from its owner. And then uh, redundancy is another feature which um, it, it, I think has to do with the safety consideration. If it's true that provenance is always going to be impossible to establish infallibly, and if it's true that people often cheat and lie and steal, then we need safety procedures in order to ensure that um, as far as we practically can for any given kind of document, and the, 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 the degree that we will go will differ depending on the degree to which the, the potential loss is um, great or small. So for any given kind of document, we're going to have different kinds of safety procedures. And these will involve primarily multiple layers of redundancy. So again, we have the, the case where I open a bank account. There are many numbers. On, in the bank account. Each of these numbers is attached to a different kind of document or a different kind of documentary entity. My social security number, the, the number of my bank account, the number of the person who issues me with the bank account, the number of the branch of the bank, and so on and so forth. All of these numbers will appear in different combinations on different documents, both paper documents and then digital counterparts of those paper documents, and become attached together in crisp crisscrossing, cross-referring bundles within the various registries and repositories, both digital and paper, within the bank as a whole. And this registry will get, this repository will get bigger and bigger with every transaction that I, um, I carry out using my bank account. And these different transactions will themselves <coughs> be marked in different ways by signatures and stamps and the like. What all of this does is to serve to anchor the document to the reality. 
So it, this is my bank account. And it truly is my bank account in the absolute sense that um, Duane is a bit suspicious about. Now, of course, I might be lying. It may not be my bank account. So you can never know whether it is my bank account. But in fact, it is my bank account, which means that my bank account document is anchored to me. And that means that we also need to deal with the relationship of anchorage with, between a human being and a document, or between a document and a piece of land, if we're dealing with a cadastral map, for instance. This feature of anchorage is part of the ontology of documents. It's not part of the epistemology of documents. If Duane was right, there would be no anchoring of documents to reality. There would only be various kinds of pragmatic processes which allow us to come to some partial knowledge about the kinds of processes which were effectuated in order to give rise to a given document. May I address that for a second? It's Duane. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think you may have misunderstood it. Uh, what I said was the the weight is really the variable that must be satisfied. So, you know, it is. I still assert that it is true. You can never tell with absolute certainty, yes or no, this is a person. I what think. people rely on is that the credibility and the weight of trust is equal to the risk encountered as a result of approving or disapproving whatever it is they're doing. So, you know, your, your passport from the U.S. is probably going to weigh in as sufficient evidence that you're probably an okay person uh, to come into Canada, uh, whereas the library card from northern Yemen may not be as accepted right. as the same way. Now, let me ask you a, a question against the background of my uh, thesis that we should never contradict common sense. I agree with you totally. You can never tell that my document is a document which truly is anchored to reality in the way it claims to be. But can you tell that your passport is truly anchored to you? Well, it's a way of looking at it, though. When I look at my passport, all I see is that... Are you deviating from common sense now? Yeah, I'm using common sense. This is... My passport represents that I have um, satisfied the requirements of the Government of Canada that I have the right to be issued a passport using okay, the name Dwayne Nickel with my picture. Sorry, I didn't hear the last bit. Is your passport your passport? Actually, in this case, it belongs no. specifically to the government of Canada. Sorry, I didn't hear that. Uh, in this case, the, the passport physically is the property of the government of Canada. They never no, no, belong to the The statement's tautological. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, it's the passport that is, is for my use, yeah. Good. So then we're, we're in agreement. There is the ontological question. Which person is this passport the passport of? And sometimes, as the, in the case of your own passport, you can, you can know with absolute certainty that it is your passport. But normally speaking, you can't know with absolute certainty, but normally speaking, it still is such that the passport is the passport of the person who is testified to be the passport of. If that were not the case, we wouldn't care about passports because they would not serve the purposes that we need them to serve in identifying people. So, there are different ways in which we can anchor things to reality through fingerprints and through official stamps and barcodes and car license plates. And this, this means that in, in some of these cases, we're dealing with a new kind of knowledge. We, we have knowledge by acquaintance where we see the person, we shake his hand. We have knowledge by description where we see a list of distinguishing features 
which enable us to isolate this person as the, the likely person that we want to uh, identify. But we also have knowledge by comparison, and this gets us back to the passport question I raised earlier. When we are standing in front of a person and we have the passport of this person in our hand, we can compare the photo and the signature with the person and the, the signature produced by the person that's standing in front of us, and we can compare them. And this is a, a, a it's neither knowledge by acquaintance nor is it knowledge by, by description. And then we, well, I've talked already about the need for an ontology of signatures. Signatures, as I said, are always such as to be attached to documents. And documents can be either signed or not signed. Documents in need of being signed can be not signed. But even if they are signed, they can be incorrectly or fraudulently signed. They may need to be signed and stamped, and so on and so forth. There are a number of different ways here in which the, um, the object signature can be subject to various different kinds of um, institutional modifications. And similarly, names. I think that if we're going to study the ontology of signatures, then we need also to study the ontology of names. What is it which we are signing when we sign our name? And um, I think the names are like symphonies. So they are allegraphic objects, particularly a name like Smith. The same name can be used in many different kinds of contexts. But you can't forge a name. And um, the, 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 the way in which a, a name is like a symphony goes something like this. When Mozart writes a symphony, he creates a new abstract entity which can exist in many copies. When in some ceremony I am given a name, then a new sort of cultural object is created which can be used in many circumstances and for many different purposes. This is my name. It's just been created. It belongs to the domain of created entities. It's a historical object which is yet abstract. And it has parts, just as a symphony has parts. So my first name and my last name are parts of my name. Now, there are many other people who think they are called Smith, but they do not share any part of their name with any part of my name because their name was created in a different kind of act, in a different place, and at a different time, and it was anchored to a different object. And now, um, I'm not sure whether this is refreshed properly. So we've, um, names are linguistic objects, but they are not linguistic objects in the purely syntactic sense. They are not pure informational objects. They are cultural historical objects. And um, this raises the question, what precisely is the role of the strictly linguistic and strictly informational with, within a document? And my suggestion is that there are many extra features of documents in addition to the linguistic, informational, syntactic content, which give documents, the kinds of documents I'm interested in today, their special deontic force. And then the, the, the puzzle question is, how do we, we recreate those features where we're dealing not with paper documents, but with electronic documents. Some of the things we can recreate quite easily, like registration, but other things like signatures are more difficult, as we all know. And one 
The important question in this connection, then, is precisely the anchoring question. We know how to anchor my name to me. We have all these various different ways, passports, photographs, fingerprints, DNA samples, signatures, shaking my hand and listening to me on the telephone and the like. How do we anchor digital objects to, for instance, human beings in reality? That's a, a, a more difficult problem. And um, I said I would come back to the question of um, driver's licenses in Belgium. Mm. A credit card receipt is autographic. That is to say, a copy of a receipt is not the deontically the same entity. But the, the credit card itself is allographic. In fact, it's dismissible. What is important in the credit card case is not the plastic, it's the numbers. If you know the numbers, then you can bring about transactions. Given a certain degree of trust, you can bring about transactions even in a bar. You can certainly bring about transactions on the Internet without the piece of plastic. But just as names are cultural objects with provenance, which are created through special kinds of document acts, so credit card numbers are special kinds of cultural objects. Credit card mm -hmm. numbers are not mathematical entities. They are cultural entities. And the reason they're cultural entities is because they fit into a gigantic cultural entity called the credit card validation system. They are cultural keys fitting into this gigantic globally distributed system of locks. They are not just informational entities. And that's the end of part three. So. Any questions at this stage? This is Nicholas, I just want to make an observation. It sounds like you, you, if we wanted to kind of represent the kinds of concepts and relations or and, and notions that, that you've mentioned just on the topic of documents, which extends to authentication, identification, signature, context, history of registration and whatnot, it, it, it's almost as as complicated as, uh, for example, a an upper ontology like Sumo or Dolce or, or something else. I mean, it seems like uh, it, it, in the end it might it might have little to do with just being a document, but it could be applied to an ontology of things or people. Or, or uh, it, it, it seems that we're, we're we're kind of getting you know so deep into um, all kinds of complex issues that uh, I'm wondering um, if it's almost like a, you know an ontological black hole there. That, okay, first of all, a, a practical point. I said that these ideas, many of them, uh, arose in working on the very simple kinds of documents which are being produced spontaneously in villages in Africa, for instance. Uh, Hernando de Soto has produced a kind of um, catalog of hundreds of different kinds of documents which are being produced on the ground. Um, they're not being produced by lawyers, they're not being produced by specialists, they're being produced by people on the basis of spontaneously recognized needs. And what, 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 what DeSoto's idea is, is something like this. When you attempt to bring about economic development in uh, uh, poor areas of Africa, 
very often the, the methodology of choice is to import Western legal notions and Western legal documents and Western legal specialisms. And the, the, for various reasons, they don't work. The, the people on the ground don't recognize them. They can't afford them. They, uh, they don't respect them. They don't understand them and so on. And so his idea was, let's look at the actual documents which are being created by the people themselves and see if we can't help the, um, the, the, uh, the, the communities in question to live with documents like that and to develop them into the kind of sophisticated system which would enable them to engage in more ambitious kinds of trade and, and um, uh, manufacturing industry and the like. Now, what that means is that we're dealing here with very, very simple things. And what we discovered when we tried to understand these very, very simple things was that we needed to develop very many of the notions that I've been describing today. So, for instance, the notion of redundancy. The d documents that they have are documents which are full of just the same kinds of redundancy that you find in Western bank documents. And I don't know that anyone has studied the role of redundancy in documents. If you look at the, um, the, 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 the what the, the literature is which exists on redundancy, you find that mission-critical um, safety measures in, in nuclear power stations study the way in which redundancy can bring safety. But in the, the XML W3C type world, people are always trying to get rid of redundancy. They mm. think that the one of the virtues of the digital age is that we can now have really clean documents in which redundancy is no longer a factor. We should actually learn to love redundancy. What redundancy is a wonderful thing. So that, that, that's the practical point. Yeah. The, the second point is a more theoretical point. All of these distinctions exist. Credit card numbers truly are special kinds of numbers. A forged signature truly is different from a fake signature. And if we're going to develop ontologies of things like credit cards or numbers or internet transactions, then we need to be aware of these distinctions. And mm. if they're complicated, then the world is complicated. So, so is it fair to say then that in, in the example of uh, redundancy of Susan Nicholas again, sorry to mention that, in, in the example of redundancy you've mentioned, that then something like modernizing, uh, in this case, um, a, a society in Africa, as you mentioned, or perhaps it might be modernizing, say, um, an enterprise that, you know, with, say, perhaps new technology, and perhaps in, in the context of a, um, the, the Western civilizational world, that without um, fully understanding you know, in this case, for example, where redundancy is practically useful because people are expected or, or needed, and where we might, in fact, um, um, make introduce technology or, or infuse certain new techniques or methods in the world that would perhaps uh, um, result in a net loss of, say, redundancy at the practical level, then we run the risk of some kind of uh, ontological mismatch between. Yeah what mm. technology does versus what the society needs. Exactly. Surely the issue is that, um, it, it, following on from that, the, 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 the principal difference in autographic and allographic that I would see here is that autographic represents a implicit, or certainly not, an, uh, not no explicitly uh, defined or encapsulated set of characteristics of a particular 
signature or document and whatever. Um, whereas an allographic one, by its nature, it encapsulates it in a digital form, encapsulates a defined subset of some uh, of defining characteristics, for example, of a document, in such a way that um, it, it is possible to copy it. So that if you've got a you know, a scanned copy of the, uh, the Declaration of Independence. We know it's not the same as the, uh, as the original. We know it's out, it can only be allographic. But if you've got a, a, a reasonably good forgery with the wax signature, uh, with the wax uh, seals and the signatures or whatever, you've got to go to a finer level of granularity in terms of the characteristics you're looking out for to define it as being a unique document. And therefore, um, it is back to this whole issue about context, because in some contexts, somebody, a signature which seems to be identical is considered as, as authentic, whereas if you see the person that is signing something, even though the signature is identical, but you know that the person in front of you is not the same as the person whose signature it is, then you've got a different context with a different characteristic which is taken on board. And I think it's, that is the problem in the digital age, is, is understanding what aspects need to be captured in order for something to be able to make the assertion that something is authentic. Right. So I could summarize the first part of what you said by saying that um, the digital world is um, nice and clean and digital, uh, namely it's allographic. We can make copies to our yeah. heart's content, perfect copies. The real world is but it's incomplete. Yeah. The real world is, is messy in ways which make the making of perfect copies and the making of perfect validation impossible. And if we are going to use, if we're going to develop e-commerce or e-government or any of these other things, then since we're still living in the real world and not in the digital world, we have to find ways of doing justice to these messy, complicated, exactly. uh, annoying bits. And I'm trying to point out that how messy and complicated and annoying these bits are. Um, with regard to the second part of what you said, I, I would insist that you need to realize that even if a signature is considered to be identical in a given context, that is a quite different claim from the claim that the signature is identical. Oh, I'd agree. Maybe I didn't make myself clear. I'd agree with you entirely. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good. Any more? Well, I, I, I have a quick comment. It's Bill. Um, I, I just responding to Nicholas's comment about the ontological black hole, I thought this would be a good point to make a, a general methodological point. Um, one of the things we've heard at Ontology Works in our practical work, and I think if people who have built large ontologies, I know Adam would be still on, uh, can resonate with this. One of the one of the things that we do is we end up usually doing um, you know a body of, of research that could be considered uh, classified as black hole-like, like Nicholas said. And, and then we, at the end of the day, we end up taking about 10% of that and putting it into the information system. It's either uh, cutting down the number of, of entities that are described or, or uh, introducing logical relations that summarize the complex patterns of ontological relations that may underlie that. Um, without, uh, to, but to make a judgment a priori that you're not going to be willing to chase down these these um, alleyways to discover the dirty little secrets hiding there is, uh, in the end, I think hurts you. You, you end up uh, with something more akin to a traditional data model rather than what could be called a, a computational ontology. 
So, so Mr. Nicholas, if I understand what you're saying, Bill, is that the the perception that the discussion that Barry has led us here as uh, something that amounts to perhaps some kind of ontological black hole in terms of the number of concepts, relations, and whatnot required to sure. reconciliate the differences between the allegorical world and the autographical world um, yeah. in ways that um, won't hurt us or that will enable us to live us is in some ways a, a kind of a, a, a an, an intermediary complexity step uh, required until we can identify the practical subset of that, the 10% you mentioned, that would enable then us to infuse technology in a way that um, will be compatible with the way the the society or the, the in which that technology is going to is going to work. Yeah, I, I I think that makes sense. It, it's um, the what what usually happens though, and 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 one of my big problems with those of you who know me, I have a, a bad problem with the the Gruber definition of ontology as a specification of the conceptualization is that only certain conceptualizations really count as ontologies, and certain ones don't. And that definition doesn't admit a distinction between good and bad conceptualizations. And really, what Ari's talking about is is trying to find out um, uh, what the criteria for good would be. Uh, with respect to an ontology of documents and rights. Okay. And then, you can, then it's an engineering decision what you'll do with that. Bill, this is Adam. If, if I may, I, I agree with you completely. I think what we're talking about is, uh, in part, a difference between uh, one might call uh, research and implementation. One doesn't do some reasonable research to find out, as you say, what, what are the, the goblins that are lurking at the higher levels? What are these unanswered large questions? Then the lower levels are going to have problems because they're going to be uninformed by uh, an overall theory. And yet, uh, if one doesn't actually do some work on a practical implementation, which may or may not, for purposes of reasoning on a particular application, uh, include uh, a lot of the stuff at the upper level, if one does sort of one devoid of the other, you either are left with uh, an uninformed schema that has all sorts of lurking uh, deep problems that haven't even been found, much less addressed, or, or if one works uh, only at the top, then you're ungrounded by application and you can spend the next 2,000 years uh, uh, you know, working strictly in philosophy as opposed to applied philosophy or computational philosophy, if you will, um, uh, just, just trying to uh, answer questions that in some sense are, are sort of unsolvable positions in metaphysics of which there are maybe many good alternatives. So if I understand well, Adam, is that you're saying that if, if we do something like HL7 without knowing the, the issues that Barry is talking about, then we may run into the problems that he mentioned. But if we're spending too much time in something like um, is sumo right or is dolce right or whatever, then we end up you know, playing you know, with philosophy all the time without practice. So now the question I would have in this context is, what does... Um, what does it say about how we should organize then these uh, parentologies like uh, SUMO such that when we want to f extract the 10% that is going to be useful, as Bill mentioned, we can say with some reasonable expectation about how we've constructed it or trim it down that it's the 10% that's going to really address the problem that we have. 
Well, I what I've been saying is, you know, pick one and move forward, um, because we could argue for the next thousand years about which of these various choices in metaphysics may or may not be right. I mean, there are lots of wrong choices, obviously, but there are also quite a number, I think, of right choices. And I think what Barry's doing is, is really important in that he has, uh, you know, in the work with Dolce, um, uh, advised on how to nail down some of these specific choices so people can actually make progress on doing practical problems. And if one has a practical problem, you know, look at the available upper ontologies, look at how those upper ontologies have been elaborated with domain ontologies that are, are uh, close to your domain of interest, uh, and pick on that basis and move forward. I think that there yeah, are actually. I, I, I think for Adam. Can I can I make make a distinction here between the the kinds of concerns that we have when we're building applied ontologies in the way that Adam does or the Dolce people are doing or I'm doing also in the medical world, and then there is the um, the, the the higher level uh, kind of enterprise which I've been engaging in today. I don't think it's higher level in the sense that it's more like an upper ontology. I think it's higher level in the sense that it's trying to learn from existing attempts to understand the ontology of the document domain what might have been missed. And if documents are important, for instance, in healthcare or in, um, in uh, commerce or in uh, forensic contexts, then it's important that we get the ontology of documents right when, we, when we're trying to build applied ontologies, and that means we need to think about the weaknesses in existing applied ontologies, and if an uh, existing ontology defines the document as an informational object, then that's a problem. It may mean that the concept of information has to be redefined to do justice to the kinds of things I've been pointing to, or it may mean that we have to revise what we understand by the word document, and I think that is the, actually the appropriate, um, the, the appropriate lesson to, to draw. The, the world of documents is much richer than the world of information. And if we think of documents as just as XML structures or a, as something like that, then we're not going to be able to do justice to the way documents work in real-world contexts like, like banking. <coughs> so, shall I do the last few slides very quickly? Yes, please, please. So we have the, the final part, which is about standardized documents. And um, the, the, so we need to distinguish between a template and an act of filling in that template and um, filling in your tax form, for instance. And um, the, um, the, the, the development of standardized documents was, in fact, a, another big step forward in the history of civilization in the first hundreds of years of any given developed civilization, there were no standardized documents. Each document had to be prepared from scratch, usually by notaries or similar um, authorities who were paid very highly for their skills and who were, of course, very much interested in not allowing standardization. Standardization often comes in the teeth of opposition from the notary trade unions and, and guilds. And for our present purposes, we need to understand then what is involved in a standardized document. What is a template? The template, what, is, what does it mean that it's standardized? Well, it means that we have a, a, a recipe or a plan for producing many copies. But then what does it mean to fill in a template? We can, again, there are various different ways in which we can fill in in such a way that things go wrong. And... Um, and people have to learn this. 
So um, th this is from a, uh, a fairground teaching people who are, are not used to filling in checks, just what it is that's involved in filling in a check. Now, standardized documents allow various kinds of things to take place which would not take place without the standardized documents. I said earlier that we save time. We can be lazy. Um, we, we, providing the, the document comes from a place that we trust, then we will likely not read it thoroughly. But standardized documents also allow networking. A standardized document might be filled in by eight or 23 different people, each of them filling in different parts, or it might involve eight or 23 different people, each of them checking different parts. Another feature of standardized documents is that the trust that they involve can spread across time. One difference between speech acts and documents is that we can use documents to express our will even after we're dead. And also, of course, they can communicate across space. So speech acts are limited by the media of physical communication. Documents can be moved around uh, more or less in unlimited ways. And this is, of course, true a fortiori where we're dealing with digital documents. But um, probably the most important feature of standardized documents is that they can get better and better over the ages, that, that we learn how it is that we best create a standardized contract, for instance. And the memory of the, of the specialists who know about contracts can be embodied in the most efficient way within a given template so that the people who have to engage in contracts can save time and can save loss by using a contract which has been brought to a pitch of perfection. And um, this means that we need to distinguish between good documents and bad documents. The good documents are the documents which are precisely easy to fill in, but also easy to fill in correctly. So one of the um, uh, experiences which Hernando de Soto made when he tried to introduce good documents into uh, Latin American countries where people very often live in homes but don't own their homes is that um, the, the notaries who had been in charge of documenting land title had made it difficult to fill in and register documents for reasons having to do with their own purposes so that it might take 15 years before you could actually register a property title. His idea, which was put into practice very effectively in, in Peru and other countries, was that the, the, the problems that you face in land titling are very seldom encountered. And you should not try to insure against all of them by having special clauses in your document. Rather, you should create a document which is easy to fill in and leave the costs which arise in case of problems to be paid later in those rare cases where problems arise, rather than to be paid in every case in the form of delays and high price, uh, uh, high bills to be paid to notaries, in, in, even if they don't arise because you're dealing with an unproblematic case. And then standardized documents improve communications. They allow more and more standardized and more efficient and more reliable transactions. Uh, they allow abbreviation of communication. They allow the creation of more effective registries. They have all kinds of positive practical features. And they embody social something. Um, and I can't remember what the noun is there. Uh, but what, 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 one of the things which they clearly embody is that not only are they easier to fill in in a purely practical sense, they're also easier to fill in 
truthfully and it's easier to check that they've been filled in truthfully and by the right person because we can make them self-validating by enforcing the presence of signatures and, and seals and stamps and all of the other things which we've seen earlier in talking about attachment and redundancy. And then DeSoto, this is my final slide, DeSoto says that standardized documents make us better people because when we have to fill in a standardized document, we are attesting to the correctness and truth of what we, what we write, which means that we are placing our trust at risk. And if we trace, place our trust at risk, for instance, in taking out a mortgage, which means that we're placing our homes at risk, then we're also more likely to learn what is involved in placing our trust at risk, and that mm. means that we are more likely to become trustworthy people. I have so, a question. Yes. Uh, this is Rex Brooks, and um, taking the notion of standardization a step further, uh, do you think that it would be a good idea to develop a uh, standard way for an issuing entity to declare the intent of a document uh, according to the higher level uh, of abstraction, such as allographic or autographic? Absolutely, yes. I, I, I am hoping that these kinds of considerations will help to bring about improvements of precisely that sort. Well, Dwayne from Adobe, Rex, we, you know in the uh, Acrobat 7, I think, we do have that feature with the signature because the, the legal requirement yeah. was it's not just the signature. The signature is merely a token that is supposed to represent a physical entity has consented to it, but they also need to capture the nature of the consent. So we have a, uh, an extensible yeah. list of these things, such as I agree to the terms, I authored it, I reviewed it, etc. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking a little bit one level up from that so that the um, actually the issuer who wishes to, uh, say, produce a uh, marriage license or a birth certificate, etc., says this is meant and intended to be a um, uh, certification document. So, uh, this is Nicholas. I guess if I understand what you're saying is that you, you'd want to have a description of what the standardized document is. Yes. Such that when we produce an instance of that kind of standard document, then you could say, well, you can use it relative to uh, how we've described its intended purpose in the context of a society of, uh, of, of agents and roles yeah. and that of interactions and whatnot. Precisely. I'd like to be able to, to have a, a way to sort of check that off when you're making, when you're making a document and say the intent of this is to be an authoritative thing for X, Y, and Z and to check, and we refer to this standard such and such at, for a definition and for a legal, uh, the legal purpose of uh, interpretation. Right. So that, uh, providing you recognize within your system that one single document may serve a plurality of purposes. Oh, yeah. Yes. And also providing that the system is open-ended in the sense that you allow people to invent new kinds of documents. Oh, yeah. It needs to be extensible. Dwayne, you were about to say? It's almost like saying that the work's being done in UNC fact. Um, a lot of what you're discussing through the UNE docs and also via the uh, UN layout key. UN yes. layout key recognizes yes. that certain documents may in fact exist with specialized languages on them, but it, it just the, the appearance of the layout of the boxes of which information goes where needs to remain the same, and that has a powerful legal connotations behind it. Uh, yeah. I, yeah, thank you. I, I also wanted to mention this. I think that you know, having a, a good standard upper ontology like SUMO and a uh, 
things like CCTS, the, the core components of EBXML, is a real step in the right direction. I think from what Peter said, this, this should be the last question, if anyone has a last question. Right. Actually, I mean, our, our booking with the free conference, uh, conference bridge, uh, sort of ends around, around now, and any extra time is sort of at risk of being kicked out. So, uh, maybe we should give, uh, it, it, uh, Professor Smith sort of a, a couple of minutes to wrap up and then we can continue the conversation for another maybe five, ten minutes if people still want to continue. But let's try to wrap up here. Okay, so I'm not sure that I have any uh, neat summary of all of this. Um, I, I, I think that all of ontology is a black hole, actually. <laughs> I don't think that we will ever be finished. And I think we have to learn to live with that fact. And um, We're in business for a bit, then. Sorry? Jobs? We're all in business for a few more years. Oh, then. I'm afraid so, yes. So I've been doing this for 30 years now, so... And I, I, I have seen the way in which the world of ontology has grown, and it, it seems to be growing at increasing speed. So maybe on that note, uh, let, let us all thank Professor Barry Smith for a very insightful talk, and uh, this is the Ontolog Forum uh, with our invited speaker, Professor Barry Smith from University at Buffalo, uh, Thursday, October 13th, year 2005, uh, with Professor Smith presenting his talk on how to do things with paper, the ontology of documents and the technologies of identification. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Smith, and thanks. Uh, mm -hmm. Thank you, you all. Yeah, thank you, Barry.